Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series in 1 Timothy called Upholding the Truth. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Law of God and the Gospel of Jesus. begin by reading our text, and it's 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. If you've been tracking with me through this study of 1 Timothy, you might wonder what this passage is doing here. Sounds like a theological treatise on the purpose of the First Testament law. And 1 Timothy, well, that's a book about the proper conduct in the local church so that the local church will be a beacon of truth in whatever community it finds itself. So at first glance, we might think that this passage might just be a sidebar or a theological excursion to something that often occupied Paul's thinking. You know, for instance, read through Galatians or long sections of Romans and find out how thoroughly Paul discusses the relationship of the First Testament law to the good news of Jesus Christ. But here in 1 Timothy, what would that passage be doing here? But you might also remember that in order to teach proper conduct in the local church, Paul has asked Timothy as job one to silence certain persons from teaching heterodoxy. That is, they were adding elements to the Christian faith that was not a part of the apostolic doctrine, and so they were creating chaos. Timothy was to be involved in a fight to safeguard the truth of the gospel. Well, yesterday I made the point that these false teachers had devoted themselves to myths about Scripture, flights of fancy, adding elements not found in the Scripture. And consequently, people became involved in speculation rather than growing in the one true faith. And Paul tells Timothy, you've got to stop those guys. And then in the two verses just before the passage I've just read, the passage about proper understanding of the law, Paul adds, 1 Timothy 1, 6-7, Certain persons, by swerving from these, that is, swerving from studying and knowing the truths of the gospel, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, here we are. The false teachers were not only involved in speculations and myths, they thought of themselves as teachers of the law. Now, It might be that these false teachers had been listening to the Judaizers. I mean, those were a group of false teachers who insisted that Christians needed to be circumcised and adhere to Jewish dietary restrictions in order to be forgiven of their sins and saved in the day of judgment. I mean, those were the Judaizers. They claimed that unless Gentiles were made into cultural Jews, they were lost and ultimately damned. And this is also what the false teachers in Ephesus might have been teaching. Now, of course, we don't know that, but we do know that they advertised themselves as experts in the law of Moses. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of the First Testament, well, this kind of teaching gained a following in the church. 
Now, remember, Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to stop those guys. And then Paul gives an explanation as to how the believers in Ephesus are to understand the law and how they are to evaluate anyone who claims to be a teacher of the law. So where's the point of application for us who now read this 2,000 years later? Well, I think the answer should be clear. This is another one of the ways that God's people who hear the word of God being preached are to evaluate what they hear. Look, I know there are a great many people whose only evaluation of a sermon is in, you know, how funny it is or how dramatic it is or whether or not it spoke to them personally. But as we grow in Christ, our first question must be, does what is being said from the pulpit accurately reflect the text of Scripture, the theology of the whole Bible? It's a mark of a mature church of Jesus when people demand Bible exposition and demand that when a text is being explained, it accurately reflects the nature of the gospel. And that's especially true when it comes to the teaching of the law of God. See, I know that today there are really two wrong paths to take concerning the law. So one false path is to argue that unless you keep the law, you can't be saved. These are preachers who, in effect, are moralists. Almost all their preaching is condemnation of sins and keeping of the commands in order to achieve the blessing of God. Now, that path completely misunderstands that salvation comes by grace through faith, not through works of the law. I mean, the good news is that Christ endured the curse of the law for us so that we might be judged by the merits of Christ and not through our keeping of the law. And that's so vital. And we must insist on it from all of our preachers. Failure to preach this way is to fail to preach Christ. So let's keep works righteousness preachers away from our pulpits. But there's another error that's equally profound. It teaches that since we're saved by the finished work of Christ on the cross, the law has become obsolete and completely unnecessary. And so notice how Paul begins verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good. The law is not bad. The law is not unnecessary. The law is not an inferior form of religion. The law was given by God, and nothing that's given by God is ever to be despised. Let's say that again. The law is not passe. The law is good, and it can be in good service to all of God's people. But the law also can be easily abused. Notice again, the law is good, says Paul, if, and oh my, that's an important word, isn't it? If. It's good if one uses the law lawfully or in the way that God intended for the law to be used. So I want you to imagine the law as a locked door. Imagine you're going down a hallway and you seek to enter a door. You find it's locked. Doors get locked for reasons, and the principal reason is to keep people out. You see, when you encounter a locked door, you can break it down or you can respect the message, and that's the law. So here's an example. You're flirting with someone at work, and you're married, and so is she. Then comes the law. You shall not commit adultery. It presents you with a locked door. The door's locked by God, and God says you may not enter here. The law is a clear expression of the will of God. Now, before we move on, let me answer some questions for people who struggle with a First Testament law. I mean, you might complain, I mean, wait a minute. Not all the laws are that simple, are they? I mean, there's a law that forbids wearing of clothing made of two different kinds of fabric in it. I mean, there's another one that forbids boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. Still another one forbids using a tool to shape the stones on an altar of sacrifice, and so on. I mean, after a while, the mind glazes over, and the law doesn't seem to make sense, at least to us. 
See, I think Martin Luther presented us with a handy little rule of thumb. Some laws are only intended to govern the national life of Israel and were never meant to be applied to anyone outside of the covenant nation. So that includes laws regarding circumcision, laws about dietary restrictions, and laws about what clothing to wear. Those laws were intended to shape the culture and the community of the nations surrounded by idolatrous nations. They're meant only for Israel's national life. And then there are other laws that are completely fulfilled by the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Look, we don't sacrifice bulls and goats anymore for the simple reason that these acts were a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. With his death on the cross, Jesus has now ended all the sacrificial laws. Of course, we still study these laws, but we study them to more fully understand all that Jesus did for us, but we don't sacrifice. I mean, that would deny the final perfect sacrifice of our Savior. And finally, there are some laws that make up the moral law of God to be applied to all people at all times. You know, at the heart of this are the Ten Commandments. This is the moral code that God expects of us all. So let's start here. The moral code of God is a locked door to prohibit conduct that God prohibits. And that's good, says Paul, but God would never give us a moral code that's not perfect. However, when you approach that moral code, you better make sure that you use it lawfully. So what does that mean? Well, look again at verse 9a, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. So why was the law given? Well, it was given because men and women are constantly breaking down locked doors and entering where God has prohibited entry. From the time of Adam, who ate from the tree that God had prohibited, to the time of the modern preacher who has a secret sexual tryst on the side, the law was laid down to say to all the ungodly, you're a sinner, you're a disobedient person, you're an unholy human being. As we do every October, This year, we're offering a 2022 scripture calendar based upon Dr. Neufeld's recent book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Throughout the year, you'll be reminded of God's great provision for those who believe, featuring wonderful pictures of crosses around the world, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and passages of scripture that remind us of all the benefits of our salvation. I believe this is one of Back of the Bible Canada's best scripture calendars and it's yours for free as our gift. Just call to request your copy today as quantities are limited. We pray this will be an inspiration to express gratitude to God throughout 2022. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Additional calendars to your free calendar are also available at $10 each. The law is given to awaken wrongdoers that God has noticed. The law, says Paul, is for those who break down closed doors and in the process are discovered for what they truly are. Criminals, trespassers, lawbreakers, violators of what God has commanded. Now we begin by noticing the three pairs of adjectives that Paul gives us. The first, the lawless and the disobedient. 
These are the people who have an inward attitude that will not submit to the law. They're willful lawbreakers. The second pair of adjectives are the ungodly and the sinners, and that is, they will not suffer God to direct their lives. They don't fear God, nor do they think it necessary to worship him. The third set of adjectives are the unholy and the profane, or those who are irreligious and treat nothing as sacred. They're morally unclean. And so says Paul, the law was given for just such people. God presented them with a series of closed doors, and whenever they broke through one of those doors, they demonstrated the kind of people they actually are. And then Paul gets specific. And as we go through the list he gives us, I'm going to point out that Paul's actually working through the second table of the law. And so the the fifth law of the Ten Commandments is, you shall honor your father and your mother. But instead of leaving it simply of dishonoring father and mother, Paul deliberately inflames the matter. He says, they strike father and mother. I mean, once having broken down a locked door that forbids dishonoring of parents, well, after that, they know no bounds. Then Paul moves to the sixth command, the prohibition against murder. And here he makes no comment. I mean, each act of murder is that, it's murder. Then the seventh command, you you shall not commit adultery. And interestingly enough, there is and continues to be an argument over this matter of adultery. I mean, there are those who say, look, all the law prohibits is to restrict sexual actions of the married. And if you're unmarried, well, then technically you can't commit adultery. And to this, we must stop and consider the command in its context. You know, in the ancient world of Israel, almost everyone of adult age was married. And so technically, any relationship outside of marriage was adultery. But when Paul wants to apply this law against adultery, well, he also looks into the rest of the First Testament law. And he he gives examples as to how the seventh command is constantly being broken. He mentions sexual immorality, and that's a word that speaks of all sexual acts outside of marriage. And then, just to drive the point home, he gives one specific example. Men who practice homosexuality. Now, we might ask, I mean, why pick that example? Well, for one, the law mentions it. Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20, verse 13. And Paul affirms that this is God's moral law for the human race. This is the locked door in which God has said, you may not enter. See, I think Paul also mentions this because Ephesus, well, along with a great many other ancient Roman cities, were places where homosexuality was openly practiced. And Paul's making a point. The perfect law of God condemns it. Well, next, Paul moves to the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. And here to illustrate that, he does so well in the most fascinating way. When speaking of stealing, his illustration surprises us. See, he doesn't mention people who break into banks or into houses or rob victims along a pathway somewhere. Neither does he mention embezzlers. So what's his example? Enslavers. Men who steal the souls and freedoms of others and place them into unlawful bondage. It's interesting, slavery, says Paul. It's theft, pure and simple. It steals a person from their family, from their culture. It steals their freedom. See, isn't it interesting? For all those who argue that the Bible's soft on slavery, look, it's not. Yeah, I mean, yes, the Old Testament did allow for slavery when a person was forced to pay off a debt, for example, but even there, it provided opportunities for redemption so that debt might be forgiven. But the pursuing of men and women in order to put them into shackles, well, that's an example of theft, says Paul. And finally, Paul combines the ninth and the 10th commandment in which we are prohibited false witness 
and forbidden also from envying anything that belongs to our neighbor. And here Paul simply mentions liars and perjurers. And then Paul admits that this list is a very truncated list of the locked doors along the hallway of life. And he simply adds, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. But stop there. See, Paul says, those who break through locked doors are contrary to sound doctrine. See, often when Christians speak about doctrines, I mean, we're speaking about things like, well, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of justification by faith, the doctrine of last things, so forth. It is a list of essential truths of the Christian faith. But sound doctrine also makes it plain that God has shown us what is good and what is evil. You can't teach sound doctrine unless you declare to God's people what behavior is approved by God and what is condemned. And that brings us back to Paul's opening words. The law is good if you use it lawfully. So what does that mean? How does one use the specific commands of God in a way that God has intended? Remember I said there were two errors. One error is to preach, don't open locked doors and you'll be saved. The truth is that's a lie because if we actually studied the law, well, we'd find that each of us have pushed through locked doors and we've earned not salvation, but condemnation. And the second error is to ignore the law. It's to say, you know, now that Jesus has come, I'm just forgiven and I can enter any locked door I want to. That's what Paul calls contrary to sound doctrine. So how do we use the law lawfully? Remember, Paul's telling Timothy that the false teachers in Ephesus, well, they desire to be teachers of the law. But then Paul also added, they're filled with errors. Indeed, they were ignorant of how to use the law lawfully. I presented a picture of the law as a series of locked doors. So let me switch images now. The law is a medical diagnostic tool. Perhaps you've experienced one of those, you know, a blood pressure machine, a heart monitor, a CAT scan or an MRI. Now, now look, whatever diagnostic tools your doctor has, not one of them is capable of curing you of an illness. And if you don't know that, well, you might be frustrated by these medical devices. I mean, what good are they if they can't cure you? It's true, they can't. But they're not intended to do that. And neither was the law. The law doesn't heal you of your sins. The law doesn't change your heart. The law doesn't lead you to heaven. The law is completely unable to transform anyone. So what good is it? Well, some might say none at all, but that would be wrong. The law is God's diagnostic instrument that tells you what's wrong with you. My dear father, bless his heart. Well, he used to say he never wanted to go to the doctor. He'd say, I feel fine, only to go to my doctor and find out I'm not fine. So why should I go? And I know a great many people who feel that way about the law. The law is a mirror that shows us exactly what we look like. Keep away from the law, you're going to feel pretty good about yourself. Yeah, you do slip up occasionally, but deep down, you tell yourself, I'm basically a good person. I mean, isn't that the lie the culture tells us? And then comes the law, and it's uncomfortable. It's utterly and completely condemning. And when Paul says the law is not laid down for the just, he means the just, the righteous, the holy, the perfect. They've got no reason for this diagnostic tool. And that holy and righteous person who didn't need the law, that was Jesus himself. When the law was applied to him, it found no hint of sin in him at all. But for the rest of us, the law gives us a rather rough ride, doesn't it? And like any good diagnostic tool, it should lead us to seek healing, a healing that's found only in the cross. 
And that's why Paul ends this section with the words found in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, Paul means to say, you're going to know a teacher of the law who uses the law lawfully when his use of the law leads to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the good news that Christ died for our sins, the good news that he has satisfied the law's demands, but also that the Holy Spirit has come to transform the heart so that once loving sin and constantly breaking through locked doors, we have been receiving a new heart, a heart that seeks only to enter the door of God's perfect will. And all of that kind of a gospel, that brings glory to God. That leads to a trust in Christ. It leads to authentic and holy Christian living. It leads to something that is always about the glory of God, because God gets all the praise and adoration for what he has done in us, not in what we have done by observing the law. Remember, all that we have done is observe what God has told us. We're sinners. But the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus, that tells us that grace comes through what God has done. All glory be to God. Thanks for your message, John. It made me think, though, you know, is it still possible that there's those who are basing their salvation still on fulfilling the law? And their confidence comes from they believe they are doing everything right rather than an acceptance of God's grace? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a disease of the heart that will be with us until Christ returns. And uh, part of the, what drives this kind of a doctrine forward is simply the pride that exists in our heart. I mean, if we ever come to the place where we say to God alone be the glory, then we will despise everything that we can do to earn our salvation. But, you know, the human heart just resists that kind of humility, and the human heart demands that, you know, in some way I'm responsible for my own salvation, or I've done something that's earned my salvation, or, you know, I've contributed in some way to my salvation, and that's a law-centeredness. Of course, we're called upon to be obedient, but my obedience doesn't earn salvation. The only thing, the only thing, and we need to continue to say that, that has earned my salvation is what Christ has done on my behalf. He is the author of my salvation. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Neufeld, Alafagain's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. While the full Israel itinerary is now available, 
So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.